Hey kids, Mandy here, and I wanted to personally invite you to join me for Cincinnati Song Initiative's first ever Fellowship of the Song, happening May 20th through 25th. In addition to a week full of amazing concerts, song workshops, and classes, I'll be leading some seriously fun study events on heartwarming topics such as murder ballads and exploring death through music and poetry. Should be a great time! (laughs) You can participate as an auditor, whether you come to Cincinnati in person or join remotely from your comfiest couch. And the best part is that all the week's events will be recorded for unlimited viewing through June 26th. So, what are you waiting for? Head to cincinnatisonginitiative.org forward slash audit to learn more about this groundbreaking new program for song. And I hope to see you in person or online. This episode of Follow the Leader is sponsored by Longy School of Music of Bard College. Longy has reimagined conservatory education, leading the seismic shift to center music as social change, expanding the world's understanding of what a life in music can mean. To learn more, visit longy.edu. That's L-O-N-G-Y dot E-D-U. Okay, can you... T- <laughs> Testing. I can I'm not prepared for a, for a photo Test. opportunity. <laughs> You're like, this is an audio session only. <laughs> kids, and welcome to Follow the Leader with me, your host, Mandy Madrid-Sikich. If you are a fan of the podcast, remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. And remember, if you like what we are doing on the podcast, tell your friends. And if you don't, then tell your enemies, because as I like to say, any publicity is good publicity. Today, we are joined by Georgia Clay. Hello. Georgia, you're here. Thank you for having me. (laughs) I'm so excited you're here. Um, Can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Hello, listeners. Uh, My name is Georgia Clay. Um, I am a piano student of Mandy's, and we've been working together for about four years. And um, let's see, I'm an academic coach and teen mentor. I teach Spanish, French, and English uh, literature and study skills to teenagers and college students. Uh, I'm also doing a training for life coaching, and uh, we'll be starting a PhD program in depth psychology in the fall. Um, Yeah, I'm really excited to be here and talk about music with Mandy. (laughs) Yay, we're so excited to have you. Um, So today, as you know, we are talking about Clara Wieck Schumann. Yeah. So let's get into it. Georgia. Yes. It's true. Many people today consider Robert Schumann to be more famous than Clara Wieck Schumann, his wife. But the reality is that during their lives, Clara was far more famous than her husband. She was a veritable superstar, and it's partially because she was so famous and championed his works so tirelessly that he has enjoyed the legacy he has. But today, today on Follow the Leader... It is Clara's day. Now, I'm sure that for my listeners, I don't need to state the obvious, but let's just get it out there. 
Clara Wieck Schumann was a German-born pianist, composer, editor, arranger, teacher, and one of the most renowned musicians of the 19th century. Born in Leipzig, Clara was the oldest child of Marian and Friedrich Wieck. Well, technically, she was actually the second born, but her older sister died within a year or two, so Clara was raised as the oldest. Her father was an ever-present, or maybe I should say ever-looming figure in her life. So I think it might be prudent to tell you a bit about this man who was larger than life. Friedrich Wieck did not come from money. He was, however, a very sharp man with a shrewd business mind and ambition that knew no bounds. He was described as self-assured, egotistical, demanding, uncompromising, and narcissistic. Sounds charming. <laughs> right? It's a conglomeration of uh, adjectives that maybe don't describe the most pleasant person. <laughs> he even married for gain rather than for love. He set his sights on a young woman named Marion Tromlitz, a talented and famous pianist and vocalist who performed weekly at the Gavant House. He counted on her professional status and societal standing to propel him into an upper level of society. Great idea, though, right? I mean... <laughs> yeah, a little social climbing. I mean, I too could have done such a thing, but alas, I married for love. <laughs> <laughs> Probably for the best. Yeah, I think so. Um, otherwise, there would be so many episodes of Follow the Leader that wouldn't be great because Brian Sickage was not in it. Exactly. <laughs> um, uh, so Friedrich Wieck was a tutor for wealthy families for many years, but in his late 20s, he decided he wanted to try music. So he wrote a few songs and they happened to receive some mild praise. Well, actually, before that point, he had been sent to a school where he was going to receive music lessons and he attended the school for about six weeks, but his family ran out of money. So he only had like, six hours of musical training before this point. <laughs> um, right, so he wrote these songs and they happened to receive some mild praise. Remember that he had only received six total hours of musical training, but this was a guy who truly believed in mind over matter. So he decided to become a piano teacher. Wow. Right? Uh, he had been in the education profession for a while and was clearly a brilliant man, so it's no surprise that he did eventually establish a method of training that turned out to be highly successful in teaching virtuosic pianists. His teaching style placed a rigorous technical foundation and a beautiful lyrical line above all. He made his students do massive amounts of exercises like scales and arpeggios, as well as some exercises that he wrote. He paid minute attention to proper posture, finger placement, and hand position, and was notorious for his perceptive attention to detail and precision. He also rented and sold pianos, and he even established a music library that uh, he allowed other people to come and, like, you know, check books out from. And the composer, uh, do you know Richard Wagner? Have you ever heard of him? I haven't. Uh, yeah, so Richard Wagner, very, very famous for his operas. Um, he borrowed from this man's library. Oh, wow. So Mr. Wieck had an extremely tumultuous marriage with his wife, and they often had serious conflicts and disagreements. One factor was that Marianne's mental health was not so good. Uh, she suffered what from what was described at the time as 
nervous ailments, which mm. back then, if you were a woman and you had an issue, it was, oh, just like one of those nervous <laughs> ailments, you know? Yeah. Uh, actually, my friend was telling me the other day that she went into the doctor because she was like passing out a lot. Uh-huh. And the doctor was like, oh, some women just pass out a lot. Yeah, that sounds like bullshit. <laughs> Are you kidding me? You're like, just a woman. You're just a woman. You're just a, you're just gonna pass out a lot. Be passing out from time to time. Oh my god, it makes me so furious. Ridiculous. Um, so she, these nervous ailments that she suffered from included anxiety, depression. Uh, her behavior, though, was often unpredictable and erratic, um, which made her family life difficult. Of course. Right. So another factor I think that you know contributed to the falling apart of the marriage was the fact that. Um, Friedrich's intense personality was just over the top. He was so strong-willed, domineering, so oppositional, demeaning, and immovable that Marianne eventually left him. Uh, and they actually got a divorce in the 1800s. They wow. went, yeah, all the way through with it and got a divorce. And uh, she married a man named Adolf Bargiel, who was actually a friend of Vicks. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> Yikes. Scandalous. <laughs> right. <laughs> Apparently, they had had an affair while she was married to Vick. And so when, when she left him, he kept the children, um, mm. meaning that Clara did not have much contact with her mother as she was growing up. It was mm -hmm. extremely limited because he wanted to really control her. And so she essentially grew up motherless. Was that typical at the time that a man would have custody, custody of the kids? I believe if they got divorced and the man wanted custody, the the children were considered his property. Right. So I I don't actually know, like I did not yeah, research tons of divorce stats, yeah. but I do know that children were considered the property of the man. Right. Um, I think a lot of times, however, though, the man didn't want, because then he had to be very involved in the child sure. rearing that typically wasn't his role. Actually, we'll get into a little bit more about mm -hmm. that later. So Mr. Vick had a clear vision for his children's musical careers and was not afraid to assert his authority to ensure that his vision was realized. He imagined great fame, status, and prosperity for himself if he could produce a superb virtuosic pianist. Mm. Self-serving, right? Yeah, no pressure. <laughs> right. <laughs> we must, however... Give him credit where credit is due because Mr. Vick recognized the extraordinary talent in Clara and determined to channel all of his ambition into her destiny to become a concert pianist of the highest caliber. Young Clara was initially thought to be a bit slow. She did not speak until she was four years old, which was unusual, and it was a concerning development for her parents who sought medical advice and various therapies to try to encourage her to speak. According to some accounts, Clara's delayed speech might have been rela related to her mother's mental health issues. Um, so that could have affected Clara. But also keep in mind that Clara experienced a very conflicted and turbulent home life, right? Right. It was just not peaceful there. So it's quite possible that the trauma of the conflict contributed to her late speaking ability. Sounds like her father was also very exacting and demanding. Right. So you, I personally would have been scared perhaps yeah. to answer that like, i would be wrong right that's a terrifying presence the idea that you would speak and say the wrong thing exactly father like exactly so um i think that probably both of those things yeah. played into this 
After her parents divorced, Clara lived with her father. According to accounts from her family and contemporaries, she was playing simple melodies by ear on the piano by the age of three and was composing her own music by the age of five. Uh, Mr. Vick recognized her talent early on and began giving her intensive piano lessons when she was just four years old. I think I remember reading that she had like an hour or two piano lesson every single day. (laughs) (laughs) One wonders what I could have been if I had had a one hour piano (laughs) lesson every day. (laughs) Clara quickly showed remarkable technical and artistic ability on the piano. This was the beginning of Friedrich Wieck's all-consuming plan to transform Clara into a career virtuoso. He wrote... The whole education from the earliest youth must be planned accordingly. So he was leaving no room for the possibility of something else. Do we know if Clara loved music as a She child? did. It yeah, like well, if she had such an affinity for it. She would enjoy it, but Yes, and we'll talk about it a little bit more later on, but she did truly love music and she did it wasn't just oh she did all these exercises and became great i think there are certain people who do all these exercises they're never going to become great right uh but she had the combined opportunity and talent then equaled the virtuoso she became well it sounds like she was expressing herself musically almost before she was expressing herself verbally right yes yes she was beautiful While he did arrange for Clara to learn to read and write and speak English and French, many other elements of her education were often looked over in favor of her rigorous musical education. In addition to piano, Clara received training in music theory, harmony, counterpoint, and composition. She also received instruction in singing and the violin, which helped her develop her sense of musical phrasing and expression. And she was also required to go on brisk two or three hour walks every day. (laughs) Which on the one hand is great, like get away from the piano for a bit, like Mm -hmm. highly recommend. But like, it wasn't an option like, oh, go for a nice stroll. Like, no, you must briskly walk two or three hours. Wow. (laughs) Which actually we'll find out served her well later on in her life. I wish someone would make me go for a two or three hour brisk (laughs) walk every day. It depends. For me, it depends on how brisk. Maybe a one hour brisk walk. (laughs) Yeah. Let's get some other stuff done. Yeah, right. And that takes a lot of time. It It doesn't leave time for much else, honestly. Under his devoted, and some might say obsessive guidance, Clara laid the foundation that was to serve her well as she matured into the virtuosic piano for which the world clamored. At the age of eight, Clara was a member of the music circle that met at her father's house. She regularly performed at these gatherings, but did not make her public debut until she was nine years old. I know he was kind of saving her like he didn't want to put her on display too early. Unlike someone like Mozart's father, who took his kids around from the time they were teeny, teeny, tiny. He wanted there to be no mistake that Clara was going to burst onto the scene as this like highly developed, extremely capable musician. Um, when she began performing in public concerts and attracting attention for her virtuosic playing, Mr. Veek began receiving all sorts of requests for lessons and all sorts of accolades for his teaching. So he enjoyed that. Exactly. His plan was working. 
By the time she was a teenager, she was performing throughout Europe and was considered one of the most brilliant pianists of her generation. Although her father was strict and unyielding, Clara was deeply committed to music and worked hard to refine her skills. In addition to her daily lessons with her father, she spent hours practicing the piano every day and was always seeking out new challenges and opportunities to perform. It was noted from early on that Clara carried herself and played like an adult. Indeed, there were many comments made, too, about her appearance in this manner as well, that she had a somber, soulful, dark look in her eye. Actually, I have a picture of her. Well, actually, it's a drawing, but Mm -hmm. you get the idea. Oh, yeah, she looks lovely. Yeah, you can tell there that she has, like, she's very sharp. She has an elegance to her. Yes, yes, 100%. An excerpt from an essay written by Johann Leser puts it this way. The mixture of grace and carelessness in her movements goes far beyond one of her years. I know of no better way to describe it except as an echo of Clara's mocking, painful smile. It seems as though the child could tell a long story, a story woven out of joy and pain. And yet, what does she know? Music. Clara did not have the standard experience of being a child, behaving like a child. Vick always treated her as a professional, which could have been cool, except that he was also simultaneously exploiting her for his own purposes. Right. He boasted that Clara did not have time to play with toys or dolls, but that the satisfaction of his training and her playing gave her even more happiness than childish activities. I mean, it doesn't really sound, though, that he gave her, like, the time to experience any of those childish activities. So how would she know? Like, every, like, second of her day was scheduled out by him. Right. Well, and his version of that serves him. Exactly. Exactly. I I think that, truth be told, every element of of his family life and of raising his children was all about how it could serve Him, him. The narcissist. Exactly. Um, He often wrote to his wife, because he did end up remarrying, Uh, he wrote to his wife asking her to place announcements in the paper about what the reviewers were saying about Clara because of his training. Right. So it wasn't just happiness at the fact that she was successful. It was happiness because his his plan for like teacher dominance was, was working. And his role in her success. Exactly. For Clara, playing well meant she received her father's praise and therefore his love. Mm. It was a long enduring pattern throughout her life that she equated praise of her playing with love. This pattern would emerge later with her husband, Robert Schumann, as evidenced in many diary entries and letters. That's so fascinating. Yeah, it really is. You, and you can, it's just so clear. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll read you a few excerpts later on. It, it, it's so clear that that, that's just what she knew sure we can see the early psychological Mm. patterns at play absolutely speaking of robert schumann so before we get into their relationship i really had wanted to establish that before she was a wife before she was a mother she was an incredibly successful career pianist highly acclaimed extremely famous extremely famous this was unusual for women at the time However, Robert Schumann first met Clara Wieck in 1828 when she was just nine years old, and he was 18. He had come to study with her father and had intimate access with the members of the family. 
He often played games with the kids. Clara had some younger siblings. Um, and indeed, Robert remained a child at heart for the entirety of his life. Uh, I read about him being a pretty involved father, that he, he truly enjoyed like the company of his children, um, which was not customary for the time. Schumann was struck by Clara's prodigious talent as a pianist, and he began to follow her career closely, attending her performances whenever he could. Over the years, Robert and Clara developed a close relationship based on their shared love of music and their deep respect for each other's musical talents. Schumann also became a mentor to Clara, offering her advice and encouragement as she navigated the challenges of a musical career. He came to count on her to introduce his music to the world. Initially, he had intended to become a concert pianist, you know, uh, on his own right, but he injured his hand. And so playing the piano professionally was just completely out of the question for him. So conveniently for him, <laughs> Clara was right there to perform his works. And she did her best to program his music as often as she could. So rarely a concert would go by without her programming at least one of his works on it. And that was like starting from a young age. As Clara grew into adulthood, her relationship with Robert began to evolve into a romantic one. Mm. However, as you can imagine, Veek strongly disapproved of the relationship and went to great lengths to keep them apart, even suing Schumann in an attempt to prevent them from marrying. I just wanted to say, too, I realized I forgot this, to say this at the top of the episode. There is so much that we could talk about when we're speaking about this woman. Right. Like I could devote an entire episode alone to this conflict between Robert and Clara and her father. Mm -hmm. I mean, entire chapters and biographies are dedicated. It was, it was a very long drawn out tumultuous, tumultuous agonizing process. Wow. And so many aspects of her life just are really, really um, burdened down with a lot of stuff. Um, I, however, am kind of glossing a lot of things in favor of giving a picture of the woman as a whole. So <laughs> that's a little bit different. So I, I know like any of my listeners who are like diehard Clara Schumann fans will know there's a lot more here that I'm not saying. Right. <laughs> but we just can't say it all. I mean, I already have eight pages here <laughs> so, and I only have so much time in a day. Um, right. So where was I? Right. The lawsuit. Mr. Veek slandered Robert's name, publishing terrible lies about him and spreading gossip as much as he could. Some of the information Veek used was obtained by breaking into Clara's locked letterbox. And why was he so anti? Yeah, that's a great question. So some people think that it's because one else. So there's a lot going on here. I think first and foremost... It is because he wanted to maintain his control over Clara. Okay. And he could see that Robert could rival him professionally, was a great talent, and he did not want to lose his control over Clara's mm -hmm. life. Um, also, when Schumann first went to him to study, his family was not convinced that he could make a career as a composer, a pianist slash mm -hmm. composer. And so Schumann's mother had written to um, Mr. Veek, kind of giving him background about Robert, saying mm -hmm. that he drank too much, that he indulged uh. himself too much, and that perhaps could have put him in a bad light. At this time, it seems 
Schumann was no longer indulging all of those wild and like hedonistic qualities. But I mean, look, we all go yeah. through this stage hey, of life where we need to, history. <laughs> you know, we need to taste Don't the judge, fruits. Judge the poor guy. <laughs> right. Um, but he like latched onto that and he used that letter later on as like part of the proof that he was a man of deplorable character. And, um, but, and, and actually I'll get a little bit more into it now. I think it's just, he mm-hmm. wanted to maintain his control over. Yeah. Clara. That would have also been convenient to, you know, use that. Um, right. You know. Right. And I, I think it, it is interesting that, he was initially excited, right, about the prospect of Robert coming to study with him. And he saw great potential in, in him. But as soon as he showed, you know, expressed love interest, it was game over. Right. So also there was the age difference. When Schumann and Clara first met, he was 18 and she was nine. Obviously, it wasn't romantic at that point, but there was a pretty big age difference. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's anything to get your panties in a bunch about, mm-hmm. but whatever. Um, and I, I do think really the professional rivalry rivalry was probably the most, right. um, yeah, the most compounding is that what is a compounding mm-hmm. element mm-hmm. or yeah yeah uh, he was a well-known music teacher and critic right and perhaps saw schumann as a professional rival so schumann's growing influence in the world could have threatened Vick's own position um and he just didn't want to lose that control over clara's career seems like he really saw her as an asset absolutely that's a great way to put it that is a great way to put it Vick did everything he could to keep Clara away from Robert and maintain strict control over her. Um, I believe that their romance came to his attention like shortly after Clara's 16th birthday, um, which was like the last happy birthday that she had for years and years because she was so miserable. He forbade her to have any kind of contact with him. She was not allowed to close and lock her door. And I seem to remember that he even like kept writing utensils locked away so that if she needed to use a pen, she had to go and ask him for it. Wow. And then he would make sure that she was watched over as she wrote to make sure that she wasn't writing to him. No Um, love letters. (laughs) Like, (laughs) what the heck? To like keep pens under lock? Jesus Christ. Um, Other ways that he controlled her and let's be honest and call it what it is, abused her, um, were as follows. He isolated her. He kept her isolated from her peers and other musicians, believing that he was the only one that could provide her with the training and guidance that she needed to become a successful pianist. He discouraged her from forming close relationships with other musicians or engaging in social activities that he deemed to be a distraction from her musical activities. We've already discussed this, but he just imposed a strict schedule. Like her schedule was planned out to the last second. And actually, right after he had discovered the um, uh, romance, he planned a tour for her and just like whisked her away. Mm. So she wasn't like in town, even in the same town. And then he emotionally manipulated her. Vic uh, often used this emotional manipulation to control Clara. He would play on her insecurities and fears to keep her in line. He frequently would tell her that she wasn't good enough or she couldn't do something that she needed to work harder and he would use threats and intimidation to keep her compliant. That is awful. Even more awful is this uh, incident that Robert wrote about um, that he witnessed in the house. So this is from his diary in August of 1831. Yesterday, I saw a scene whose impression will be indelible. Vic is surely a wicked man. 
Alwyn, who was Clara's younger brother, had not played well. You wretch, you wretch, is this the pleasure you give your father? How he threw him onto the floor, pulled him by the hair, trembled and staggered, sat still to rest and gain strength for new feats, could barely stand on his legs anymore and had to throw his prey down. How the boy begged and implored him to give him the violin. He wanted to play. He wanted to play. I can barely describe it. And to all this, Clara smiled and calmly sat herself down at the piano with a Weber sonata. So the fact that Clara could just be sitting there chugging along while that's happening as if it's just, you know, nothing's going on shows Mm -hmm. that. Right. It was normal. Yeah. Yeah. That was the norm of the house. Mm. Oh, and I forgot this one creepy fact where he kept a diary. Um, So Veek and Clara kept a diary. It was Clara's diary, but sometimes he would write in it as her, right? Which I know like diaries back then were often a little bit different, but still he would sometimes he would write like I played well to like as her and he always had access. So she could never write anything personal in it. It was always something they shared. He's like literally trying to live her life for her and creepily becoming her by narrating in the first person in her diary it's like it's creepy next level (laughs) next level for sure and actually it's interestingly enough robert and clara had a shared like marriage diary um when they got older so it's interesting that that pattern like re-emerged later on uh yeah they would like they would like share weeks like it's Honestly, it's a good thing we have it because we know a lot about their marriage. We know a lot about mm. them, but um, it's kind of mm. interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Slightly uncomfortable. <laughs> I will not be sharing my diary with Brian no, at little, any point in time. A little weird. <laughs> Thankfully, Robert and Clara had many sympathetic friends who helped them communicate without her father's knowledge. And eventually, Clara made a break for it. But not without experiencing extreme anguish. Right. I mean, I think that happens a lot with abused people. Like, it's really hard to break that tie. She had her father to thank for everything, her career, her art, even her life. But clearly it was an unhealthy relationship. Right. Her father actually even held her piano hostage for a while after she left the house. It was during this time that she went to live with her mother and reestablished her connections with her. And then her mother remained a constant source of encouragement and guidance for her. Yeah, for the rest of her life. I think it was probably this like, aha, I've seen the light sort of moment. Like I understand why you couldn't stay. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I wonder how much of a mental health issue Marianne truly had. I think anyone who lives with an abuser like that, it it can make you go crazy. Yeah, it's going to manifest anxiety and depression, et cetera. Exactly. Nervous disorder. Uh, When Clara wrote to her father that she would like some of the money that she had earned, like she earned all that money giving the concerts. Like, true, he managed her, so he should have gotten some of it. She should have had access to our money um he replied that if robert really loved her he would provide everything for her um so wielding robert's love against her in a way upon receiving this response however i I love this about her she determined to earn her own dowry Mm. and she promptly arranged some concerts to earn the much needed money that she knew she was going to need for her marriage amazing so robert and clara were married in 1840 
for the most part, they had a happy marriage. Again, I could do like five episodes on their marriage, but alas, I will limit it to these few pages. <laughs> um, and while their marriage was happy, it was not without its challenges. As was customary for the time, Robert was expected to be the financial support, while Clara was expected to fulfill the role of wife and mother. Nothing wrong with that, right? But keep in mind, this woman already had an established career. Initially, the new wife accepted her role with eagerness. Simply to be the wife of Robert Schumann was enough. But those who knew Clara knew that that would not last. Her art was her life's blood, and she was going to need to return to it. She was a devoted mother who was deeply involved in the care and upbringing of her eight children. But Clara's relationship with motherhood was complex, and she struggled at times to balance her maternal responsibilities with her professional ambitions. In the 19th century, societal expectations regarding women's roles and responsibilities were very different than they are today. Although, not like we don't face our own <laughs> challenges sure. in this regard. But women back then faced significant challenges in pursuing careers and fulfilling their maternal roles. Even though Robert supported her as an artist, there were certain ways in which societal norms made her position as both a wife and career woman difficult. She always deferred to Robert's need for the piano. So if he was composing, he could, she couldn't have access to it. It was like locked away in his study. And so even if he like wasn't like specifically sitting at the piano that time, it was in the room. And she, so she just couldn't access it. And sometimes he would lock himself away for days and days and days and days. And she wouldn't know what he was doing, but she couldn't practice. And they had one piano. So right. it was. They had one piano. For the majority of their married life, they had one piano. Mm. Um, when he was in the habit of going out to the tavern between 6 and 8 p.m., she would then try to like, you know, scramble and get all her practice time in then. <laughs> Um, often, a concert would consist of Clara playing solo in the first half, and then in the second half, one of Robert's works, like with a larger ensemble, would be played. But she would consider the concerts to be a disappointment when Robert's works were not well received. No matter how well she played, it was a failure if his stuff wasn't accepted enthusiastically by the audience. Um, at one performance, a fellow composer offered a toast to Clara... And not to Robert. Burn. Yeah, and Robert was absolutely furious. And uh, it was just a challenging situation. I just sure. I can't imagine how that would feel that, yeah. you know, to deal with your husband's ego in that way. To try to be great, but also know that your greatness and the celebration of it threatens the person right. you love. And that society is telling you that that's, that's what's right, like yeah. that your husband does deserve. Ugh, it just sits in fury. I mm -hmm. thank God I did not live in the 1800s. Oh yeah, <laughs> I mean we've got our own problems, but but oh man. I mean... Despite these uh, challenges, she was careful and attentive in all that she did, and at times she was even heroic. In eight, I love the story. In 1849 in Dresden, there was an uprising taking place. And while Robert was supportive of the rebels, he simply was not in any like physical condition to go out and fight. So um, Clara hid him in the house until they were forced to leave because they were going to come and like demand that every man fight. So they, for they fled in the night and were only able to take one of their kids with them. And they had, I think, three or four younger children, right? So they left their younger children with the servants just to get Robert out of the city. 
And then the next night, Clara, at seven months pregnant, made the dangerous journey to go back and get her other four children, sometimes even having to walk through open fields through the city. Um, at one point during the journey, Clara and her children were stopped by a group of soldiers who demanded to search their carriage. But knowing that her husband's involvement in the uprising could put her and her children in danger, she stood up to the soldiers and refused to allow them to search the carriage. Wow. Yeah. And she argued with them until they eventually relented and allowed her to continue her journey. So Amazing. What those a boss. Those brisk walks <laughs> <laughs> paid off. <laughs> Over the years, it became clear that Robert was suffering from some kind of mental illness. Mm. At these times, he depended on Clara for both artistic and financial support, and she became his defender and protector. Mm. Sometimes he would become so absorbed in his work that she would have to take over some of his responsibilities in addition to everything she was already doing. For his part, when he was well and of sound mind, he did try to accommodate her when possible. So when he was offered a job, for instance, he would ask if there was anything for Clara to do because he knew that she could not be still. So even though she had all the things like the managing of his career and her career and the children and the household, um, he knew that there had to be something artistically for her to do. Mm. Um she worked tirelessly, and this quote from July 1847 just really sums this woman up. Oh, this is from her biography by Nancy B. Reich. At the end of July 1847, after a year that included concert tours to Vienna and Berlin, a Schumann festival in Zwickau, and the death of her youngest child and the start of a new pregnancy, this woman wrote in her diary, I am lazy. But I cannot help it because I am always ill and terribly weak. Oh, if I could only work, that is my one sorrow. So she wasn't dreaming of a vacation. She was dreaming of a break <laughs> from all of her duties so that she could work. Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> this is the kind of human we're dealing with. Incredible. <laughs> it really is. I mean, some might say perhaps a workaholic, but I think it's it's what she knew, right? She was, yeah. this is what she was trained for to use this skill and it sounds like it gave her a lot of fulfillment also yeah i think and it that truly she was did. capable of a lot too some people can really do a lot yes and she was clearly trained at a young age to do a lot right right that she and she like had the inner mm -hmm. fortitude to know that i can do this and yeah. i can do that and i can do this mm -hmm. she had very few female colleagues and only one pauline viado that she considered to be an equal um, another quote from her um, biography by Nancy B. Reich. She was generally regarded as unique, almost above gender. Obviously, being above gender didn't play out in the day-to-day, -day, right? But she did occupy this unique space where artistically she was considered to be equal with men. Um, I'm going to read you this quote. Um, this was after she so she was invited to participate in a festival and play but she wanted to make it clear that she did not want to play under the um, baton of Liszt or Wagner so she wrote to her friend Joachim as a woman I cannot act like you it would seem very arrogant if I a woman as compared to a man were to express my opinion openly I must invent a lie but what shall I say she went on to ask if he did not also think it right that she should refuse to play. Joachim's reply summed up what he and many others felt about her. 
That you are a woman seems to me to have nothing to do with it. Or perhaps it may be the very reason for you to stay away. In any case, you are, as far as art is concerned, man enough. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I should show you another um, picture of her. A little older. Where did she live? Uh, so Leipzig and Dresden and Dusseldorf. Okay. So Germany. Here's a picture of her with Robert, her mm. husband. So you can kind of see that somber yeah. look about her. Mm -hmm. She looks, she's got a heavy vibe in her shoulders and in, yes, her, yes. in her eyes. Yes. At the time, it was customary for women to put on a false modesty. Uh, the other pianist at the time who was super popular, her name was um, Camilla Playel. She would come out for her bows acting like she didn't understand why everyone was clapping. Like, mm. oh, who, what, me? <laughs> why, why would you clap for me, right? <laughs> Clara hated this. Yeah. She knew her value as a musician and she owned it. Um, there was one time she received a basket of flowers as a payment. <laughs> She was so pissed. Yeah. It's like, where's the gold? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. She wrote like this scathing letter, like, as you can see, <laughs> like, I have earned my money. Do you not think? <laughs> Rightly so. Right? Basket of flowers. Yeah. Can you imagine? Um, but I mean, sometimes that would happen because it is so, for instance, if a man, and I think at that concert, actually, there was a man performing and he, of course, got paid and she got the flowers and she was like, mm, no, no, I don't think so. No. Um, also, she was aware that she was not considered pretty. And in fact, there were times that she even called herself ugly. So playing the coquette was just not in her repertoire. Yeah. She was not going to flirt or be coy. She was going to be a matter of fact. She worked hard to achieve the level of skill and mastery that she had and she was going to own it. Um, another thing I love about her, it was customary at the time for pregnant women to hide themselves at home once they were showing because how horrible we know that a woman has, has had sex, right? <laughs> um, so they would often hide at home once they were showing, but uh, not so Clara. She continued to give public concerts in full view, sometimes even up to a week before she delivered her babies. That's incredible. I love. I, I just love that so much. Amazing. Um, also, I just. I, I've always wondered this about being like fully pregnant and playing the piano. It looks really uncomfortable, and the fact yeah. that she could execute. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. Uh, eventually, Robert and Clara moved to Dusseldorf for Robert to serve as the music director of the Municipal Orchestra and Chorus. While they were initially greeted with respect, doubts immediately began to surface about Robert's conducting and directing. Um, apparently, he like he had trouble communicating. He wasn't very... Um, assertive when leading and I think it was also part of his mental illness that sometimes speaking was very challenging for him and also just kind of part of his personality uh, they wanted to leave but Robert had no offers of employment anywhere else and keep in mind Clara could have kept them going you know with a full-on career um, but because he was supposed to be the primary breadwinner they stayed at this at this post where they were not happy. So it wasn't an option for him to be the stay-at-home dad and her the primary breadwinner. It was absolutely not. It would have been such 
a blow to his pride. It, yeah. it was that was just not acceptable. And so while they were married, Clara did concertize, but there there were periods of time where it was just very very low key. It, it wasn't as um, she wasn't giving like a high volume of concerts that she did later on in life. Mm. Um, so they, they could have earned potentially a lot more money had she been fully concertizing. And also, right. I mean, being pregnant and having just everything that she was doing, she couldn't prioritize that because right. he certainly wasn't going to manage the servants and the raising of the children and all that. And she had eight children. So she, yeah, so I think she had nine pregnancies. She had one miscarriage. One child died at about one or two years old. Mm -hmm. So seven, seven of them reached adulthood, but she saw the death of, I want to say maybe four, three or four of them. So yeah, some of her kids had some sad lives. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, I will probably talk about her children in more depth in a future episode. I cool. uh, haven't figured out exactly the context. Although one of her, her sons actually did write a poem that Brahms set to music. Mm. Um, her youngest son, uh, Felix. Um, where was I? Oh, right. So they stayed in Dusseldorf where they were not happy. And while there, his mental state greatly deteriorated. His dependence on Clara became all-consuming at this point. Schumann struggled speaking publicly so to help him in directing the choir she played the piano a task that was usually saved for the director himself Um, but she did it so that he could focus his energy on communicating with the choir but sometimes he couldn't even do that and so she would be at the piano playing and telling her what to tell the choir so she would be his voice Um, which must have been really awkward, honestly. Mm -hmm. I could see why, like, the choir and the orchestra would not be happy under under his baton. A concert artist of her caliber might consider this kind of playing beneath them, but she never complained. Friedrich Nieks wrote, She watched over him. She placed herself between the outside world and him and prevented as far as possible the rubs which tortured his sensitive mind. Robert became more withdrawn and had increasing difficulty with speech. And he had these bouts that seemed to be mild strokes, and he experienced a complete lack of energy and would suffer incessant auditory hallucinations to the point where he would hear the same tone over and over and over and over again. Sounds like a nightmare. Sounds absolutely horrendous. She tended to overlook the true depths of his descent, partially because she had the six kids at that time in the house and the career and hers. Um, But then one day, his behavior towards her changed. He was ever more critical of her playing and her musicianship and even had his assistant director replace her at the piano in rehearsal because, quote, a man understands better. Yeah. When she performed his D minor trio, he blamed her playing for it not being well received. So you can imagine how devastating it would be to a woman like this, right? Who she was raised to equate praise of her playing with love and to have her husband now saying these things. I just I can't imagine how that must have felt. And she wrote in her diary that if if she did not have to play to earn money, she would never play another note in public again because what good was it for her to earn the applause of the public if she could not even please him? 
Her 34th birthday saw the beginning of an interesting time for Clara. Her longtime collaboration with the violinist Yosef Joachim began earlier in the year at the Lower Rhine Music Festival. Robert gave her a new piano, so now she had her own piano. And she said that she was the happiest wife on earth, especially considering that she had an upcoming tour of England, which she was really excited about. However, at the end of the month, she found out she was pregnant again. Mm. And the trip had to be canceled. And she was more discouraged than she could possibly say. So she was more and more discouraged with each additional pregnancy. Robert, however, was stoked on them all. He loved being a dad. He thought that kids were just the best, that the more kids, the happier the man. Also, he was not doing most of the work. But he, he was involved with them. He did, he did care about his children and would play with them and ask about them. The day that she had to cancel her trip to England was also the same day she met a certain Johannes Brahms. Ah. Dun, 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 dun. Okay, 117. Going to read this account. So um, this is from the uh, account of Marie Schumann, the oldest Schumann child. She was 12 at the time. One day in the year 1853, the bell rang toward noon. I ran out as children do and opened the door. There I saw a very young man, handsome as a picture with long blonde hair. He asked for my father. My parents went out, I said. He ventured to ask when he could come again. Tomorrow at 11. My parents always go out at 12. The next day at 11 o'clock, we were in school, he came again. Father received him. He brought his compositions with him, and father thought that as long as he was there, he could play the things for him then and there. The young man sat down at the piano. He had barely played a few measures when my father interrupted and ran out, saying, Please wait a moment. I must call my wife. The midday meal that followed was unforgettable. Both parents were in the most joyful excitement. Again and again they began and could not speak of anything but the gifted young morning visitor whose name was Johannes Brahms. Mm. Schumann was more enthusiastic over the 20-year-old Brahms than he had ever been over any other young composer. In fact, both of the Schumanns gushed so much about Brahms that he was often very embarrassed. <laughs> A true northern German, Brahms more than once over the course of his relationship with Clara asked her not to be quite so effusive with her compliments. <laughs> they really bothered him. <laughs> yeah, like scale it back. Yeah, he was also notorious for being like kind of gruff and like friends were often off put by his gruff nature mm. so he wasn't like this super touchy-feely um although he did always have a soft spot in his heart for clara mm. um which we will get into a little bit more uh later the situation with robert's post as music director came to a head when a committee came to announce that his assistant would conduct anything that was not robert's own composition so the schumanns made plans to go on tour to holland and they promptly left the mayor of Dusseldorf declared that Schumann would be paid regardless of whether or not he uh, returned to conduct the choir. So what I'm wondering is how I can get a gig like that. Yeah, <laughs> sounds great. <laughs> Where I still get paid for all the work that I'm not doing mm. as of yet. I've not found that position. Keep but looking, Mandy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and any of all y'all listeners know of one. <laughs> I will uh, gladly take it. Um 
It was a good thing that the mayor was so generous because right after this, at the beginning of February 1854, Schumann's last downturn began. Clara noticed a worsening of his symptoms, particularly headaches and hallucinations. Sometimes he would hear fully formed works and he would be forced to stop what he was doing and listen. This is from February 21st. And this is written by, um, a f oop, just ripped the library book. Oops. <laughs> uh, this was written by a son of their friend. February 21st. What I had not dared to think would happen has happened. Schumann has been insane for several days now. I learned it first yesterday from Dietrich, who told me that Frau Schumann would like someone to come, order, to come over in order to free her from the continuous watching. So I visited him today, but it would not have occurred to me to think that he was ill if Dietrich had not assured me of it. I found him quite as usual. I conversed with him for a half hour and then took my leave. Frau Schumann looks as if she is suffering as she has never... Fr Frau Schumann looks as... You got this. I swear to God. <laughs> Frau Schumann looks as if she is suffering as she never has before. If the situation doesn't change, the worst is to be feared. She's in the eighth month of pregnancy. It was actually the fifth or sixth. And has not closed an eye since his illness. Poor unfortunate woman. During the night, she sits by his bed and listens for every movement. And then three days later on February 24th, I visited him at noon and Frau Schumann asked me to go walking with him. During the hour I spent with him, he spoke quite rationally, except when he told me that the spirit of Franz Schubert had sent him a wonderful melody that he had written down and on which he had composed variations. By February 26th, he was begging to be admitted to an insane asylum because he did not know what he would do in the night. Apparently, he would sometimes get like a little bit violent in the mm -hmm. night and he was scared of hurting Clara or the children. At least a bit self-aware. Yeah, yeah, he was. And I think, you know, sometimes that's kind of the, the saddest thing, right? The, to know that your loved one knows that they're, you know, making this descent. Yeah. Uh, this is from Marie Schumann, their oldest child again. The last time I saw my father was on the day on which he left the house to take his life. I had been called since my mother had to speak with the doctor. I was supposed to sit in my mother's little room and pay attention if my father, who was in his room nearby, needed anything. I sat at my mother's writing table for a while when the door of the next room opened and there stood my father in his long green flowered dressing gown. His face was white. As he looked at me, he thrust both hands in front of his face and said, Oh, God. And then he disappeared again. I sat as if spellbound for a short time, and then I realized what I was supposed to be doing. I ran into Father's room. It was empty, and the doors, those to my parents' bedroom and those that opened from there to the hall, were wide open. I rushed to my mother. The doctor was still there, and then all the rooms in the house were thoroughly searched. It was clear my father was gone. So Schumann had decided to run out and attempt to throw himself into the Rhine. Mm. So eventually, so people saw him and they were able to, to save him. And um, he was brought back to the house. And Clara was not told like explicitly that he had attempted suicide, but she knew, I think. 
She tried desperately to see him. He was then taken to um, an institution called Endenich, and she tried desperately to see him or get any kind of news about him during the first few weeks of hospitalization. Her mother came from Berlin to be with her. Brahms and her friend Joachim were also ever-present. Upon hearing Robert's about Robert's hospitalization, uh, Brahms had rushed there and immediately swooped in to take care of the household books, down to even the tiniest little details like postage stamps. Wow. Yeah. I imagine this must have created a sense of intimacy, right? As he's sort of taking on the role of husband and, and performing the husband's activities. Right. Clara then saw Brahms nearly every day for the next two years. When Robert was first admitted to Endenich, Clara was still pregnant with their eighth child. But as soon as little Felix was born, named after Felix Mendelssohn, by the way, mm. she immediately turned to concerts as a means of financial support. She knew that she could pay for Robert's treatment and support the household in this way. She concertized a staggering amount. Brahms and many other friends begged her to stop, but she simply couldn't stop moving, couldn't stop working. It seems that burying herself in work was the way that she relieved the pain of her grief. The reality was that Robert's salary continued through 1855, and she had so many people who wanted to offer her financial support. She was just kind of turning money away, actually. Although she did eventually um, accept Mendel, um, money from Mendelssohn's brother. He sent it in a really like touching and delicate way, so she took the, the money that he sent, but then put it aside and was able to send it back because she had earned enough and, and paid it back just a couple months later. So while it might seem a great pity that Clara needed to work to support the house, it was probably the one thing that she had truly been yearning to do. Yeah. Now she had an excuse and the space to do it. After Clara resumed her concertizing, Brahms stayed in Dusseldorf and made sure that the kids' schooling and lessons continued. Isn't that so nice? It's so sweet. <laughs> it's like stepping into help. Yeah. Um, he even helped with the younger children, which was it was just not a thing that the men did. Mm. While Robert was in hospital, Clara eventually moved into a new apartment, and Brahms even moved into a room in the same house. So, was something going on? So... <laughs> We'll probably never actually know if there was anything sexual between them. Mm -hmm. um, he was the only man outside of her family that she addressed with the informal do mm. instead of the formal z. Mm -hmm. So I know we don't have this in English, but many other languages do. And back then, you definitely would have a, addressed other men as, as z instead of... Sure. It's like in Spanish where you have the tu form exactly. for friends and, right, and, exactly. and, and usted for formal. Exactly. So it's no doubt that the two had intense feelings for each other. Um, Brahms actually even wrote like many passionate letters um, over the, their first few years of correspondence. Um, and she never really... Um, well, okay, so actually, he begged her to be very careful with their letters, that their letters were just for them. And eventually, later on, many of her letters to him were burned. They were, mm -hmm. or, or they were destroyed. I'm mm -hmm. not sure if they were burned. I'm just making that up, but I know that they were destroyed. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure to what level they were intimate. Mm -hmm. They did consider each other their best friends. So Throughout sweet. their life, they were just the best of friends. And we're they... You know, she found in this man someone who she could consider a colleague, but mm. also like an emotional support. Was she quite a bit older than he was? So she was, let's see, like 
when she was 34, I think he was 20. So yeah. 14 years right. older. Um, and many people at the time saw that this was like, maybe not so inappropriate, regardless of whether anything sexy was happening. Mm-hmm. It was like, not like the best idea to have mm-hmm. like a much younger male friend. Sure. Um, but they seem to not really care. And they just like carried yeah. on with their friendship, with their relationship and just kind of let people say, um, there were lots of times that people like, told her like hey you know you shouldn't be confiding this much you shouldn't consider him a colleague he's like way too young and mm-hmm. just doesn't look good um but good but, for her yeah yeah i this was the friend that she needed yeah and they were friends until the day she died it really seems like she was willing to uh, do things that were out of the norm or, outside or, the norm yeah, yeah or or yeah not expected for her gender or her role in life totally. and, and she just would do it anyway totally i also do think I don't know. I could see them having had a sexual relationship, but I could also see her not having done that yeah. while her husband was in mm-hmm. the institution. You know, like I, I, I think that maybe her character would have prevented that from happening. Mm-hmm. Maybe also not. I don't know. Right. Um, but I think we'll probably never truly know. At least we can tell it was a deep, intimate, it was emotional right. exactly. relationship. It was interesting that after Schumann died, Brahms moved away. So if they were going to be in relationship together after he died, they totally could have, but mm-hmm. they never did. And Brahms moved to another city. Before he died, Robert experienced times when he could write music and write to friends while he was in Endenich. But ever his protector, Clara kept much of this music hidden because she thought it was not a true representation of his ability. So she thought it was like, kind of embarrassing she just didn't want this out in the world in june of 1856 clara was completing a tour in england when she received news that robert had declined severely she went to endenich to see him but they would not allow her in yeah this was so sad she was not allowed to see him he was there for two years Mm -hmm. and she didn't see him for two years that was just a protocol at the hospital yeah she thought the doctors thought it would be too distressing to robert and to her Mm -hmm. When it became clear, however, that Robert had no more than a day to live, they finally allowed her to see him. Brahms accompanied her on this visit. Over the course of the next few days, they spent much time with Robert, but when they left for a short while to meet another friend, Robert died alone. Mm. I know, so sad. She wrote, His head was beautiful in death, the forehead so transparent and gently rounded. I stood at the body of my dearly beloved husband and was calm. All my feelings were of thankfulness to God that he was finally free. And as I knelt at his bed, I had such a holy feeling. It was as if his magnificent spirit hovered above me. If he had only taken me with him. Mm. I saw him today for the last time. I placed some flowers on his brow. He has taken my love with him. That's just such a tragic end to like, Mm. such a love story. Like, everything they went through at the beginning and then just this this way of it ending is i don't like it mm-hmm. this is not what i ordered heart-wrenching <laughs> it really is it's impossible to know what really killed schumann however he had ad- admitted to a friend that he had contracted syphilis in 1831 it seems that he might never have told clara mm. Um, and the doctors like shielded her from this information as well. Um, they told the doctors told her that uh, Schumann had a nervous condition brought on by overwork and an inflammatory lung disease. Like 
killed him off. I, the doctors loved their nervous ailments back mm-hmm. in the day. Um, got one or two of my own, <laughs> if I'm being perfectly honest. <laughs> Um, meanwhile, Schumann was being treated for all the symptoms of tertiary syphilis, which if anyone is curious about syphilis, go ahead and listen to, um, episode eight of season two of follow the leader. Uh, It's titled Schubert's Winterreise, Depost and Syphilis, question mark, Mm. exclamation mark, where we cover syphilis in... Very intimate detail. Ooh, <laughs> I was I was just gonna ask. I think of syphilis as a sexually transmitted it is, disease. Yeah, it okay, is. so yeah. that's how he would have. It's transmitted it. through a like a sore. Okay. Um, that can is usually on the genitalia. Can also be in the mouth as well. Sometimes the initial sore can uh, happen in the nose as well. Just speak it from breathing in the. Anyway, it's a very interesting episode. I highly recommend it. It was a good episode, too, because my sister joined me, and she knows all these, like, wild, like, weird facts as well. And so um, we kind of nerded out over it for a while. I kind of love that thing. And here are we assuming that Robert then contracted syphilis. Right, because he did sleep around before he was married. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so many people before he was married. Yes, so many people at the time had syphilis it was just rampant it was because it's extremely contagious and the ways that they treated it there was truly no cure for it they treated it with like mercury and other things that were actually very terrible for you so um it typically ended up take taking you out and did clara never get it Uh, doesn't it seems Mm -hmm. like she might never have gotten Mm -hmm. it because it goes through stages where it's not um so you can only get, if I remember correctly, when you have the actual open mm-hmm. s- sore. Right. And then later on, uh, when you have like, um, I think you can have like sores and lesions appear later that aren't the initial shanker. Mm-hmm. Um, those can be, if I remember correctly, do not bet your life on this. Those can also be uh, contagious. Right. But it would have been easy for him to be like, I don't feel like being sexy yeah, right now or whatever <laughs> whatever he definitely knew being sore on right. my genitals he definitely knew that he had it yeah um, it's not cool no no where was i okay after robert's death clara became the primary custodian of his musical legacy and she played a key role in preserving and promoting his music for future generations one of her most significant contributions to robert's legacy was her work as an editor of his music so she spent years like absolute years poring over his manuscripts and different editions and and working to ensure that his compositions were presented in the best possible light. So she would like fix like little mistakes or just make sure that things were the way that she thought he had meant them to be. In addition, in addition to editing and revising Robert's existing works, Clara also worked to bring many of his unpublished compositions to light. Um, Throughout this work, Clara demonstrated a deep understanding and appreciation of his music. And she had a keen editorial eye and was absolutely committed to accuracy and fidelity. Her editions of Robert's music were widely respected for their attention to detail, and many of them remain in use to this day. She also wrote extensively about Robert, and she worked tirelessly to make sure that his music remained in the public consciousness in the decades following his death. So she programmed his works like relentlessly. Um, so 
It's thanks in large part to Clara's efforts that Robert Schumann remains one of the most beloved and celebrated composers of the Romantic era. Wow. Good way. Yeah, like I said, she was way more famous than he was while he was alive. Like, you, there's quite, it would have been regular for someone to be like, Robert, who, you know, mm-hmm. but Clara, she was the famous one. So well, and it seems like a selfless promotion of her husband that mm-hmm. she did out of love. And I think she really believed in his genius. Right. Like really, truly, she, she knew that. And, and he was, he was, was he a genius? absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. His works are absolutely spectacular, mm-hmm. absolutely spectacular. Um, so I, I think she, unlike her husband was able to step like her ego is able to step aside um and and we're you know thankful for yeah, that yeah she gave her last concert at the age of 72 but she continued teaching playing and editing until she suffered a stroke in 1896 and died 2 months later wow how old was she uh so she was born in 1809 but she didn't reach her birthday in 96 so what's the math there she died in 96. No, sorry. She was born in 1819. And died in? 96. Okay, so. What's that 77 math? 77 years? Sure. And I'm not doing, I mean, I'm not in a math six, mood 16, right now. 16 should be <laughs> 77, but if she hadn't had her birthday, maybe 76 years okay. old. You do some arithmetics for me. <laughs> Great. Two yeah, that sounds about right. Two. I think that's right. Listen, I know the years. <laughs> I'm not going to do the math. She's in her 70s. Okay. I believe you. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk briefly about Clara as composer. Well, I mean, not briefly. It's kind of one of the main reasons we're here today because we're talking about one of her works. (laughs) She has over 60 works to her credit, beginning with her first published work at the age of either 8 or 11. I'm not sure. There are differing accounts. Anyway, she was young. Um, Well, her first published works were criticized for being no more than glorified exercises. I mean, excuse me. What were you doing when you were 8 and 11 years old? Um, (laughs) She quickly became adept at creating works that are noted for their lyricism, harmonic sophistication, and emotional depth. She even wrote a concerto as a teenager, and it's pretty good. Uh, most pianists are familiar with, with familiar with Robert's concerto in A minor, but actually, Clara wrote a concerto in A minor first. She wrote the third movement. At the time, it was like just a one-movement work, which ultimately became the third movement, and she asked him to help her orchestrate it, and then she um, ended up writing further two movements, which were so innovative, in fact, that a one particular key change caused one reviewer to be so shocked by it that he attributed it to the, quote, moods of women. Oh, there it is again. <laughs> like, what? if a man did that, they like, shocking key chains he would you would never be criticized for, oh those are just your moods unbelievable she was probably pmsing oh my god what the heck <laughs> it was an original work her first large-scale work actually and was said to have influenced robert's own more famous concerto also in a minor which i think he took from her i think he liked it and was like hey i'm also gonna do this thing in this case <laughs> I I love A minor. (laughs) Yeah, right? It's a good key. (laughs) Robert said that he could feel Clara's presence with him when he composed. Even at the very beginning of their friendship, 
Um, and she, of course, was greatly influenced by the composer's presence, by the older composer's presence in her young life. When she was young, they shared ideas with each other. And sometimes the same musical idea will actually appear in their work. So it's impossible to know like whose idea it, it was. Okay, let's talk about her leader. 18 of her songs were published during her life. Seven more were published in the 1990s, and even a few more were discovered in 1999. Isn't that awesome? Amazing. I don't know which ones they are. Don't ask me. Maybe we'll get into that later. I need to talk to an expert. We don't have time for that today, though. Many of Clara Schumann's leader were settings of poems by well-known German poets like Heinrich Heine, Goethe, Friedrich Rückert. By her own admission, she was not well-read, because remember, all else came secondary. walking and playing the piano. Right, exactly. <laughs> that. Um, so she mostly chose poems that were introduced to her by Robert and his friends. Her songs cover a wide range of themes, including love, nature, and death, as do most poems from the 19th Absolutely. century. <laughs> Clara Schumann's leader were highly regarded during her lifetime, and they were performed by many famous singers. They did however kind of fall out of fashion after she died so after she died her leader were not performed very much mm. and it's just been in like the late 20th century that her works are kind of seeing a resurgence so i love anytime i get a chance to play some clara schumann mm. i'm into it um i actually really like her songs too in fact there's a song um a text that schubert also set uh ich stand im dunkeln träume um what does he call it? He calls it something else. He calls it ear built, I think. Um, she set the same text, and I like hers better, mm. which is really saying a lot yeah. because I really like Schubert. Wow. When you say set the text, what does that mean? So uh, there's a poem. Mm -hmm. a, a poet has written a poem right. that he fancies, and a composer finds it and says, I want to put music to that. Okay. So uh, this there was this poem by Heine, I believe, that Schubert set and uh, Clara also set the same poem mm -hmm. and I like hers mm. even more than I like Schubert's. So the poets wouldn't necessarily be composing the poem to no. be set to music. It's the, the musician who would say, mm, this poem Correct. needs to be sung. Correct. Okay. Yes. They all find like Schubert would read a lot. It was, you know, one of the things to do was mm -hmm. to read lots of poetry back in the day sure. and they would be published in almanacs and stuff and um, composers would seek out texts for their songs. Mm -hmm. So uh, sometimes they would work with a poet. They'd say, hey, like I want you to write something that I can set. But most of the time in Lieder specifically, uh, it was just a, a poem striking the composer's right. fancy. And the composer would write the melody for the singer and then the accompaniment. Yes, mm -hmm. correct. And not all poets liked that. Sometimes Goethe was, in fact, was very touchy about it. He had specific ideas for how, like, if his words were going to be set to music, that it should be in a certain way, that the music should, like, be secondary. Whereas, like, poet, uh, composers like Schubert were making the music equal sometimes almost more than the words. Mm. Um, okay. I don't really remember what I was saying. Uh, she had a, Clara had a particular talent for creating vocal lines that were both expressive and musically interesting. So she was really good about uh, getting to the heart of the text and really setting um, the words in such a way that it wasn't just nice music to go along with the words, but it was getting to the heart of like the emotional meaning of, of the words. It, her compositional career ended at the age of 37. She never composed again after Robert's death. 
right? Interesting. And she focused mostly on her concert. I mean, she had a lot mm, to do. Right. She had a lot to do. Mm-hmm. Um, about her writing, Robert had this to say. Clara has composed a series of small pieces which show a musical and tender ingenuity such as she has never attained before. But to have children and a husband who is always living in the realm of imagination does not go together with composing. She cannot work at it regularly, and I am often disturbed to think how many profound ideas are lost because she cannot work them out. It's probably true. There's probably a a lot of stuff that we're missing because she... Because the piano was locked away in this study. Exactly. She's like, I guess I'll do the dishes. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, how about you try opening the, you know, the piano up for someone else to use every now and then, Robbie? Yeah, maybe study somewhere else. <laughs> maybe. If you're such a genius, right without the piano. Yeah. Beethoven did it. <laughs> okay, so today, the song we're going to be listening to is called Lorelei, which is based on the poem by Heinrich Heine, die Lorelei. Uh, do you know anything about the legend of the Lorelei? Um, I, I don't recall, but I have heard yeah. I have heard Lorelei played by okay. you, Miss right. Mandy, right. Uh, last year, and really loved it. It was a it was a full uh, recital, yeah. and um, that piece really really stood out. So I have some I have like an emotional connection with it, yeah. And I don't remember why. Okay, cool. Well, maybe uh, we will uh, jog your memory <laughs> in the next few minutes. So let's talk about the legend of the Lorelei real quickly. And listen, folks, I know there's so much more to say here. Um, actually, List also wrote a, a, a setting of Lorelei, and we'll probably talk more in detail about the legend in a future episode. But I'm, oh my God, we've already been going for how long? Like an hour and 20 minutes or something? Okay, so this is just real brief. The legend of the Lorelei is a German folktale that tells the story of a beautiful siren who sits atop a rock in the middle of the Rhine River and sings an enchanting song. According to the legend, the Lorelei is often depicted as a supernatural creature with long blonde hair and a beautiful voice. Her song is said to have a hypnotic effect on sailors, causing them to lose control of their ships and crash on the rocks. The name Lorelei is derived from the Middle High German words Lorum, meaning murmur, and Lie, meaning rock. That's old, old-timey German. The legend dates back to at least the 19th century, and it has inspired many works of art and literature, including this setting of Heinrich Heine's poem, Die Lorelei. Some versions of the legend say that the Lorelei was once a human woman who was betrayed by her lover and threw herself into the river, while others portray her as a malevolent spirit who enjoys causing chaos and destruction. Today, the Lorelei is seen in music, art, and literature as a symbol of beauty, seduction, and danger. Mm. So let me read you the poem. Well, a translation of the poem, okay? Um, Obviously, it's in German. Um, This translation is by Richard Stokes. I do not know what it means that I should feel so sad. There is a tale from olden times I cannot get out of my mind. The air is cool and twilight falls, and the Rhine flows quietly by. The summit of the mountains glitters in the evening sun. The fairest maiden is sitting in wondrous beauty up there. Her golden jewels are sparkling. She combs her golden hair. She combs it with a golden comb and sings a song the while. It has an awe-inspiring, powerful melody. 
It seizes the boatman in his skiff with wildly aching pain. He does not see the rocky reefs. He only looks up to the heights. I think at last the waves swallow the boatman and his boat. And that, with her singing, the Lorelei has done. Mm. You ready for a listen? Ready. Okay. Here to sing Lorelei for us is the soprano Naomi Mirror. Take it away, Naomi. Oh, and me. This is me playing, as usual. <laughs> ich weiß nicht, was soll es bedeuten, dass ich so traurig bin. Ein Märchen aus alten Zeiten, das kommt mir nicht aus dem Amazing. (laughs) So powerful. It's just so emotionally packed and just so engaging. Really, really intriguing. It really is, right? Yes. Like, just right from the beginning, like, just captivates you. It's so energetic. It is. And really beautiful. I just love how meaty that piano is like it's really fun to play it's also often very challenging like a lot of those repeated notes are pretty challenging it looks like it um and yeah it it's funny because there are times where i both love and hate like in terms of performing this 
I love it because the story is so cool and it's it's just really fun to perform the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love the melody and I just, I love how the whole thing is set. Um, but then are there other times where it just can be, especially if you're on a challenging piano, it can be kind of a drag because it's, it's a lot to manage. It's a lot of notes. I'm looking at yeah. the score right now and it's it's a lot of notes, folks. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's funny too because that ending I've totally splatted on before really? in recording. Not in, I don't think I've ever, oh God, I need to knock on some goddamn wood. <laughs> I've never splatted in performance mm. at the end, but that, there's something really challenging about the end. I don't know why particularly the, the, like, the piano like outro is the most challenging mm. thing to play in the piece mm. and oh man you just you have to be determined to grab it right i th- i think the the times when it's not worked out for me it's because i'm like oh oh my god here, here comes that spot but you just have to no there's no space for that you have to just like no fear you have to just fucking grab it just go for it <laughs> yeah and then Own it usually it. works out nice. usually usually mm. um but yeah yes yeah, so you remember that from the concert i do i see you have written here at the end memorize oh <laughs> yeah because you can't look at the music i no, you, you have, have to, to look know at your what hands. you're gonna do yeah and yeah wow for the most part we usually when i perform that piece i usually have it memorized because it is just like pretty mm-hmm. pretty intense i don't know just moving a lot and you need to like be looking where you're going also it's really hard to turn the pages (laughs) because there's no no time to really break um but yeah did it strike you any different like now knowing a little bit about clara yeah absolutely it's so impressive it's very impressive but um you know you've spoken at length about her genius and about her extraordinary uh uh self-possession and capacity to uh do so much and to just live this as this empowered artist and businesswoman um and partner and parent um so yeah knowing all of that behind everything that's going on in this piece just imbues it with a sense of who she was and yeah. you know the the person behind this incredible song yeah and i i especially like i don't know just being super in touch now like with her life because i mean i've always kind of known a lot about clara just mm-hmm. you know i've encountered her a lot and when i've had to like do like program notes or whatever you know yeah she's always kind of been in my in my uh, subconscious but having just like read all of this material and doing all of this writing and just really spending time with her and now spending time with this song the power i feel like channeled like her power mm-hmm. channeled through the song it's really moving yeah. it's really moving to be able to enjoy this incredible masterpiece that this spectacular woman was able to create in face of everything that was going on yeah in face of like the abuse in face of you know just being a woman at the time Mm -hmm. in face of like managing her husband's you know stuff it just parenting eight children right (laughs) managing their finances and it, it, it's a lot and but there's also you get a sense of that knowing her biography that there's a there's a very deep power mm-hmm. behind it yeah. both of having overcome like a, an adverse childhood yeah. in many ways mm-hmm. or of extremely challenging childhood and then everything that she was able to achieve right yeah well georgia i think we did it i mean 
We did and we didn't, right? (laughs) There's so much more I wanted to say, but we'll just have to save it for more episodes. But wow, what an amazing time I've had with you here. Mandy, that was wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing. (laughs) It's been really a delight. Thank you for letting me blab. Oh my God, I did not know it was actually going to (laughs) take... As long as it did. So I appreciate your generosity. There was a lot to go time. over. There and really, I really was. It was like a vortex. I didn't even see the clock. <laughs> it truly was a no, vortex. No, it was really, really delightful. <laughs> good, good. Yeah. I'm, so, I'm so glad that you were here. And uh, I appreciate your, your energy in occupying this space with me and Clara together. And listeners, thank you. If you haven't had enough Clara Schumann in your life, then you might want to try singing Lorelei with me. You can find my accompaniment on YouTube. I'm there as Mandy Madrid Sikich. Just click on the Leader Accompaniments playlist and start singing. Also, I am opening up the channels of communication. If there is a topic or a song that you'd like us to cover on Follow the Leader, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me your suggestions, comments, fan mail at followtheleaderpodcast at gmail.com. Remember that Follow the Leader can be found in all the usual podcasty places. And please, if you like what you hear, leave a review. It is truly the best way you can support the podcast. I mean, other than giving me a million (laughs) dollars. Follow the Leader is a production of Cincinnati Song Initiative. You can learn more about their network of podcasts at cincinnatisonginitiative.org forward slash podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram at leadernerd. That's at L-I-E-D-E-R-N-E-R-D. See you later, nerds. We did it. Amazing. Oh my God. (gasps) That was so Your licking is really loud. Hey, Thor, stop licking. Just for like 10 seconds. Jesus Christ. I, what, what am I going to do? <laughs> Why am I like this? He's just being a dog. <laughs> if you love this podcast, then you'll love the Song Cycle podcast, also by Cincinnati Song Initiative. SongCycle introduces the coolest and awesomest leaders of the song world today and dives into getting to know them and their unique stories, where they think song in the 21st century is headed, and lots of other great topics. If you're looking for your next source of inspiration as you continue on your own musical journey as a song lover, look no further than SongCycle with me, your host, Sam Martin. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and join the conversation.